We are finishing chapter 9, and that will be on page 1006. We've been in chapter 9 for three weeks, and we're about to leave it. So maybe that's good news for you. I think it's been a rich chapter, and this whole study has been rich, and I hope that you have found it to be so as well. And um, it's uh, set us up for just some of the, the beauties that are coming after uh, that, that, that we hear about later in this book. But for now, let me um, read for us God's word found in chapter 9, beginning in verse 23 to 28. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not, not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for this morning. And we we pray that you uh, would give us your grace and your mercy. uh, That you would prepare our hearts to hear your word. And that we would leave here changed people. Uh, Would you do that uh, for the glory of yourself? We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, so much of Hebrews as we've been looking at, and certainly this chapter... Is the Bible really trying to get man to come into the eternal perspective that the Bible has? Uh, We sometimes refer to that as the kingdom perspective, the kingdom of God. And I think especially for this chapter, how often do we live and do we make decisions on on a daily basis? Whether it's going to work, coming home, going to school, coming home, doing homework, chores around the house, planning vacations, going on vacations coming home, whatever it might be, that we do all these things, we go about our lives without ever thinking eternally, without ever actually having the perspective in front of us that Scripture constantly has. Oftentimes we, we go throughout life, we go through the motions, and you know we think about Oh, well, heaven is great. We think about, oh, well, being a part of this church or being a part, being a Christian is great. But those things can wait because I've got a lot to do right now. Like, I've got a lot to get done. There's so much to do. Or maybe we buy into the live for the moment philosophies of the day where life exists only in the now. And the quote unquote stops along the way. The problem with all of this is we stop here for a moment and I'm thinking about this in terms of really leaving this chapter because we do kind of move on to different topics. But I'm also thinking about why is this author talking about this now to, the, to these people? 
the problem that this ultimately creates when we don't have a proper horizon for where we're going, when we don't think in the perspective that Scripture thinks of, the, the, the horizon, the eternal horizon that Scripture always is coming out of, what ultimately happens for us is anxiety turns into depression and despair. It's like driving in a car but never really having a destination. And sure, there's going to be many great stops along the way. But if life is just about the stops, what real meaning can it have? We were made for something bigger. And if I could say this, our, our spiritual DNA, if I could use that term, knows this inside. But we're made for something much more than just the stops along the way. And the Christian story speaks into this in very, very meaningful ways. You might say that all of Scripture speaks in light of the coming kingdom, that it never loses sight of where we are in the story, but maybe more importantly, where the story is going. It never loses sight of Jesus, even though we might. And often, though, this is why Scripture sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Um, It's living with this constant eternal kingdom perspective where death truly is not the end of the story. And what I want us to come back to this morning is this message of hope in the book of Hebrews as we leave leave chapter 9. It is the call or the reminder to live life with the eternal kingdom perspective. And that is to live in light of where we are going, not where we are, which is so easy to do. The text we just read is a great example of this. And it makes so much sense why the author is directing his audience to come back to this eternal story. And the message is simple. If you're going to have hope in this world, if if you're going to make it, if you're going to hold fast, which is what the title of the series has been, your horizon, where you are headed ultimately in life, what you think your story is about, has to be bigger and more meaningful than all other horizons. Let me say that again. If you're going to have hope in this world, if it's going to last, your horizon, where you are headed, what your life is about, It has to be more meaningful and bigger than all other horizons on this earth. All other horizons meaning sex, money, power, success, you name it. Whatever it is that you would look to to find ultimate hope in, if you're going to have it, the story you attach yourselves to has to be bigger than all of those things. And it's got to be or else you will constantly give it up. And that's really kind of where these people are. In the face of persecution, if it's, not worth, if it's not bigger than all these other things, in the face of persecution, what you're going to let go of that. It's not worth it. Or you'll give it up for something that you think will satisfy more in this world. And the question looming out there for this audience and for us this morning is, what, what's driving you? What, what story do you find yourself a part of? And perhaps more importantly, is it big enough? Is it big enough? So that hope would last. Because whatever it is, that's where you're looking for hope in this world. And this morning, we're going to see how our hope is found in our and his story of Scripture is this already but not yet phraseology that many of you all probably heard of God's coming kingdom here on earth. And so you'll see there in your hand light, your handout, or sorry, not your handout, your, your program. There's three things there. Um, I want to look at finding hope in the already. We say this, but what does that really mean? Finding hope in the not yet. And then finding hope in our inheritance. So let's look at that first one, finding hope in the already. 
Chapter 9, as much, as, the book, as, as much of the book of Hebrews has talked often about this high priest and uh, how Jesus is our better high priest. And I would encourage you all, if you're just kind of chiming in, um, we talked specifically about the duties of the high priest uh, back in chapter 5. And you can find that on the, the website, um, specifically on the Day of Atonement. But we've also heard the words copies or shadow uh, a lot, referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The entire Levitical system with its sacrifices and blood offerings and all that we hear as being a copy of the real thing, a shadow of the real thing. Which means that this is how, this is why this is important, this is how we are actually going to be able to interpret Jesus when he shows up. And I think that's an important part of what this old stuff is about is, is not just sort of a plan A and it didn't work, so we'll get the plan B. It's all the same plan. And when we really begin to understand this Levitical system, this blood and what's going on with the high priest, we actually have a lens for understanding and knowing how to interpret Jesus when he shows up. And that's really what the author is doing at this point. Look at verses 23 to 24. We hear more of this. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Well, what is it that Christ has entered? He has entered heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Verse 24, and this is the, the picture is this, is that if we go back to that day of atonement, right, where the high priest would come out in all of his you know, blazing glory, and the crowd would, would huddle around and watch, anticipating this is the day when the sacrifices are made where all my intentional and unintentional sins are, are, are forgiven. And they would watch that priest go into that, that tent of meeting where he would meet once a year with the pres- in the presence of God himself to atone for your sins. But you, the audience, as you're sort of watching this, there are two things going through your mind. You're thinking, one, is the blood enough? Will the sacrifice be enough? Will the blood be pure enough? That's the first thing you're thinking of. And the second thing you're thinking of is, will the high priest return? Will he come out? Okay, so take that picture. Take that copy, if you will, as the text talks about it. This is where we are right now, according to chapter 9, verse 24. That just as the people watched the priest enter the tent, so Jesus according to Hebrews 9, has entered heaven itself. In other words, humanity, friends, has entered heaven. And I want you to think about that for just a second. Humanity exists in heaven. That is unthinkable, especially to a first century Jewish person who, re- who understood the Levitical system, who understood this place and this meeting where, where God and this earth met, how in the world could humanity exist in the presence of God? And what this text is telling us is that Jesus, because of his blood, because of his work, by virtue of his death and his resurrection, has entered that place and he is there now. But how do we find hope in this already? That's what's already happened. That is the already of the already, but not yet. How do we find hope in that? That was 2,000 years ago. Look at this phrase now in verse 24. Now to appear in the presence of God. <clears throat> I like to talk about grammar where it's helpful. This is, a, this is the phrase that, that we call, it is in the aorist infinitive. And we don't really have a, a working phrase We don't use that grammar today. The aorist infinitive, if something is in the aorist infinitive, what the author is trying to say is that this is an established fact. 
When something is in this tense, it's saying this has already happened. This will continue to happen on into the future and nothing will change it. That's how heavy this phrase is for him. It'd be like saying the sun is now setting or the movie is now showing. But what we mean by these things is that sometime in the past, the sun started to set. It's setting now and it'll continue to set in the future. Or the movie is playing, right? Somewhere in the past, somebody had play. It's going on right now. And if you walk in there and watch it, it'll continue to play later. It's an established fact. And the established fact that the author wants his listeners to hear then and what he wants us to hear now, 2,000 years later, is that Jesus has entered that. And he currently appears before the throne room of God in the presence of the Father. And that is happening right now. And it will continue to happen. And this, friends, is how we find hope in the already. Your hope today stands or falls on whether Jesus is sitting in that place right now or standing or whatever he's doing. Maybe he's laying down. But you get the point. Your hope, don't make any mistake about this, is not in, uh, you know, for lack of going on any tangents. It's in nothing else other than the fact that he is there right now. It's as simple as that. (laughs) It's also as complicated as that. That he as human is in God's presence. And what is he doing there? All right. Let's not lose sight of this. He is making you fit for that place. For the presence of God. He is, as verse 23 says. He's purifying the heavenly things. This is a little bit tricky. But what's that? And this took some reading. Because I tend to think about, well, is he just sort of rearranging the furniture up there? Or what is going on? But that is not what the heavenly things are referring to here. What are the heavenly things? Better yet, who are the heavenly things? And the who are the heavenly things is you. He's making you ready for that place by his blood. Those who will one day inhabit that heavenly place. Okay, so you're asking me then, sort of jump back in here to this question. You're asking me then to live today as though I am already fit for God's presence. Because to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure that I feel like I am. How do I know that Jesus' blood, which makes us fit for God's presence as we looked at the past couple weeks, will truly work for me? I think that's a great question. That's where we live. How do I know that my sins are forgiven past, present, and future? I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. And I, I, I say this often, but this is really the hardest part of being a Christian, isn't it? It just is like I can tell you that Jesus is there now and he's appearing before the father. He has entered the holy places for you. And his blood has worked. But do I feel that? Do I know that past, present and future? Look at this with me really quickly in verse 28. I thought this was fascinating. This is sort of almost a throwaway comment from the writer, the author. He says, talking about Jesus' return, that he will appear a second time not to deal with sins. And I sat there thinking about this because I was sort of surprised by this. In many ways, I think about Jesus' return, you know, as the place where it's sort of like, okay, y'all had your chance and, um, you know, I'm going to deal with sin once and for all right now. The author is saying something completely different. The return is not the dealing with sins. Why? Because sins have already been dealt with. The return is the gift of salvation 
that we are eagerly awaiting. I think some of us hear forgiveness, for example, or his blood has made us clean, and we are unsure, and we wonder, really? And part of this is because we don't understand the power of the blood, the once and for all sacrifice. So let me, let me illustrate this uh, briefly with, uh, with the idea of forgiveness. Because forgiveness is kind of fresh on our minds from last week. And last week we talked about forgiving others. And now I want us to look at practically what does it mean to really receive forgiveness? And what is that like? And believing that we are forgiven. That we have this great mediator that we've been talking about in this entire book who intercedes for us. Right? And we tend to think as Christians, great, I've become a Christian and immediately I have this forgiveness from this blood of Jesus who mediates for me, who advocates for me, and this is great. And, and, and as a Christian, then we kind of go out and that rules us for a while until, until we mess up, just to be general about it. Whatever that is for you, until sin kind of enters our lives in a way that we just thought, man, I thought I was over that. I thought now that I'm a Christian, maybe I wasn't supposed to be doing these things. We do that, we've received this forgiveness, we mess up, and then we find out we have to pray for forgiveness again. And this is somewhat confusing, but we do it, and we, we feel forgiven, but now, now the pressure's on. This is what we say to ourselves in our dialogue here. All right, I have asked this mediator for forgiveness, now it's my turn to really crank it up here. But ultimately, and you know how this ends, we mess up again, and maybe it's something different this time. And we mess up again. And we mess up again. And we think, okay, how many times can I go before this advocate? Can I go before this mediator and ask him for forgiveness? How many times can this blood really work for me? This is our real hang-up with forgiveness, in my, in my opinion. And we tend to think that Jesus is just sort of up there and he's happy to advocate for us the first time. He's even happy to advocate for us the second time. But, you know, at some point it's like, okay, well, that's enough. I've given you like eight chances and I, we just can't keep going on like this if you're going to keep messing up. This is, this is sort of the dialogue in our mind here, you know. And, you know, so what do we do in these moments, right? What do we do as Christians as we're working out the power of this blood and the forgiveness that we have with habitual sin, with deep-rooted sin and the way that we've affected other people? How do we deal with this? Do we despair? No. We get serious about Christianity, right? I mean, I'm talking real serious. I'm talking we show up early for Sunday school serious, Right? We start reading our Bibles every single day serious. Basically, we say, I'm going to make this right. I, watch me. Right? As we petition to the, our great mediator and advocate, watch me. And this goes one of two ways. Right? We ultimately end up losing hope or we despair. But this goes one or two ways. Either we burn out or we burn out others in our wake and we leave the faith. Right? Or... We get really, really self-righteous. And both of those roads lead to despair. Now, notice just for a second, and I'm belaboring this throwaway comment for a reason, that nowhere does the Bible say to do any of this. And I think that's refreshing for some of us this morning as we think about the hope of the already. It never says, start coming to Sunday school early. It never says, Start, start reading your Bible every day. That's a good thing to do. I've looked, though. It doesn't say that. 
Nowhere does it say or does it even come close to saying that you have to make this right now. That, that, that somehow this blood is only good for eight mess ups. <laughs> but we think that it does. Actually, it says the opposite. It says, stop trying to make this right. It says, do the opposite. Look at Jesus. And we need to hear that this morning. Look at what he has done for you. Look at what his cross has won for you. Do you believe it? That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. I never thought about it this way, but it's, it's what's already happened in this story and in our lives through our union with Christ that is actually the most challenging and the most difficult to believe. At least for me. Friends, hear this. He is coming back not to deal with sins. Which means upon his entry into that place where he appears in the presence of God for your behalf, the blood has made you clean. That is the hope of the already, that he is already there. Humanity has entered heaven to make you ready for it. His blood has worked and it works to make you, make you clean, to make you fit for God's presence. This is truly finding hope in the already. And it anchors the way that we think about hope in the not yet. And this gets to the second point. If it is an established fact, as we have said, that he has entered as the high priest entered and that his blood has worked, then it is a fact, it is a fact that he will return as well. Do you see the picture there for us? Through the Levitical system, what the high priest was doing on the Day of Atonement, entering and coming out, entering, returning. If that is true for Jesus, if that is true for the high priest, it is true for Jesus, and it is true for Jesus, if he has entered, he will return. Once the high priest entered the tabernacle, as we just said, you waited. Sometimes, sometimes maybe he didn't come out. They would tie a rope around his ankle. In case he just died in the presence of God because he messed up on the whole sacrifice thing. And so you had to drag him out of there. Now, I don't have any recorded history of, of atonement never being met. I'm sure they'd send somebody in there to you know, finish the job. It's kind of fun to think about. Um, there's humor and God's going to be humorous, right? Um, but when he would go in there, you waited anticipating his return. And you knew what that, was, what that meant for you. And friends, this is exactly where you and I are today in the, in the story. Jesus has entered the holy places. It is an established fact that his blood is sufficient to cleanse you forever. And now similar, similarly to the high priest's return from the holy of holies, we wait for Jesus' return. Verse 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's so much here, but I think we can begin to see where he is directing his audience. That 
If you're going to hold on in the midst of all that is going on around you, whatever your circumstances are bringing, right? If you're going to be, if, if you're going to have hope in this world, that story, that horizon has got to be bigger and more meaningful than anything else that you hold on to in this world. And he's giving them glimpses of what is going to happen but has not yet happened. There's so much here, but one thing that, that, that this tells us as we move further in the second point is where we are in the story. We are in the not yet portion of the story, as in Christ our high priest has not yet returned, which is to say that we are waiting. And that is our, that's our business right now. We are in the business of not waiting. And I don't know if this is true for you, but it's true for me. I really hate waiting. I really do. I want this to happen now. Uh, I wanted this to happen yesterday. So, be that as it may, nobody asked me, um, how are we to wait? And I think that's one of the questions that this text asks us. How are we to wait? And, and the answer rolls right off your tongue with people who anticipate or people who have the anticipation of incredible hope. Right? We're to wait as people with more hope than anybody else in this world. In other words, your horizon must be bigger and more meaningful than all other horizons. What does that look like? And I want to get, you, get very practical here for the rest of the sermon because hope means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. What does it mean to wait? What does it mean to hope? First, let's remind ourselves of what hope in Scripture really is. Hope is unseen realities. It's a good definition for that. Romans 8 says it this way, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Later on in Hebrews 11, we'll hear this, that, the, the, that hope is the conviction of things not seen. Or we can just go to John Piper. Biblical hope is not an uncertain desire. It is a confident expectation. Or Dick Key's author, counselor, biblical hope is rooted in God's past work that gives us present power to persevere because of our confidence in his future work. In other words, as Hebrews 9 is telling you this morning, hope is knowing that the high priest has gone in, that's the past work, but that he will return. That's the confidence of the future work. That he will come out. It is realities unseen. So what does that look like practically? How do we learn how to wait well? Which might actually be what he is telling the people in this that he's writing to, offering them what he's trying to get them to do. Let me offer some guidelines as application for this because hope is so can be so abstract. And I really want to try to anchor down here. But some application for thinking through this question because this is a big one. This is one that we definitely need to spend more time on in the future. So waiting with incredible hope, what I want to picture this for you as is walking in this world really holding two rails <clears throat> as you go about life. And one of those rails is where we are now. That's this earth. That's this place. It's this world. But the other rail is where we are going. It is heaven. It is the kingdom of God. It is, it is all that this author is talking about is coming uh, on the retur- in the return of Jesus. So you have these two rails. And the first thing that we need to note about these two rails as we are waiting, as we hold on to these rails, is that the Bible never says uh, to live with both hands on one of the rails at one time. This might be obvious to some of us, but it never says to live with both hands on either side of the handrails. For example, you are never to be of this world, right? You're to be in this world. 
Right? That, to be of this world would be to have both hands on that rail. And this is really, I think, the concern for the author of Hebrews for his audience. When we do this, we are what? When we begin to put both hands on that rail of where we are now, of this place, of this earth, we are looking for hope here. We are looking for those desires that we have to be met here in this world. We are asking this place to give us something it can never give us, and we will always end up being disappointed. And you can almost hear the audience here thinking about this, you know, as they ask these questions, well, where is your hope? Is your hope tied up in peace and comfort? Nero's armies are right around the corner, right? Death is always right around the corner. You can't have your hope tied up into some type of vision of peace or comfort. Is your hope in this world tied up in your success or wealth? Where are you going to hide this that nobody can break in and steal it? It reminds us of Jesus in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in. You might hear the author saying, is your hope in your children, your spouse, or your job? Those things can never give you the ultimate hope that you're looking for. And so we live with both hands on the handrail of this world. When we do that, we ask, it, ask too much of it. And we look for it to provide us with everlasting hope where we will always be disappointed. We will always find ourselves left with nothing but despair. On the other side of that, we can never hold the, uh, put both hands on the rail of, of where we're going. Of of God's kingdom coming here. It's the phrase that somebody put it. I'm not sure you said it. This, this makes us be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I like that. Where you are in this world, which means you care for it. Uh, you're a part of it. You're not, you're not of it. To have both hands of the handrail is, is to not care about the things that Jesus has died for. It's not to care about the things that he has um, he loves his creation, right? So what do we do? If we're not supposed to have both hands on one side or the other, what are we to do? And most of us would agree that we need to have one on each of the rails. But most times, more than not, when we hold both these rails, which is what we feel like life really is, what we're trying to do as a Christian, hoping in the definite return of the king, all that seems to happen in this waiting is hit after hit after hit after hit. That is our experience. And in the midst of that experience, friends, if you haven't thought about letting go, maybe you're not human. And I'm being more transparent than maybe I should. But that's what that feels like. And that is where these people are. Some of them have let go. They're gone. They don't want to have anything to do with this. They're in full despair. There is no hope. But the author is trying to do what? To restore that hope to them. And he's trying to do this by reminding them of where they are in the story. The hope there, more importantly, not where they are in the story, but what the story is about. And that's where the real hope comes in. That every good story has a plot or horizon in which the entire storyline is moving towards. When you take your eyes off that horizon, the story falls apart, becomes confusing. Hope is keeping your eyes set on that horizon. If you've ever done any bit of water skiing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are really two milestones to water skiing. Maybe some of you all will do some of this this summer. I want you to think about this if you do. The first milestone is just getting up out of that water, right? That's hard enough, and some of us just sort of give up, and I get it. Um, The second thing, though, is once you get up, like, what, what, what is the next thing that you're trying to do? You want to get outside that wake. And I remember learning how to do this as a kid. We grew up around water. And I would never be able to get outside that wake because every time I'd get close to that edge, my eyes would be 
staring right down at my skis. And every single time that I would try to cross, staring down at the skis, I would always either fall over or catch an edge and it would just be, it'd be enough until I had a cousin in the boat who told me this. He said, look, if you want to get outside that wake, you've got to find some point on the horizon, some fixed point and stare at it the entire time. And I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, what, did you just see the eight times that I fell here? But it's true. It's that if you just fix your eyes on some distant point on the horizon and you just go towards it, before you know it, you're outside that wake. Before you know it, you're having fun, right? This is what what skiing is about. It's the coolest thing. You'll never, ever not be able to do this again, almost. The way to move forward in this life with the hope that the author is trying to put in front of us is not by constantly looking at the handrails. It's not by escaping heaven or escaping to heaven while earth, while still on earth, excuse me. It's not giving into your desires either. And hope that this world will fill them. The way Christians move forward in all seasons is by lifting our heads and fixing our eyes on the true horizon for which our hope is found. And that is Jesus. That is your fixed point. That's been the author's point the entire time. (laughs) This is what you have to look at. This This is the horizon. This is how big your story has to be. And he's laboring so well to show why this is true. Why this works. Why the blood is powerful. How you can trust it. And to hold fast then, literally, to your hope is to keep Jesus and his kingdom as your perspective, as your horizon, as you navigate this world, and as you anticipate the next. That's what the author is reminding us of here. Will there be times when you feel like letting go? Absolutely. Of course there will. But friends... And let me just say this. That doesn't necessarily reflect a lack of faith. Jesus knew that this would be hard. And so one of the gifts that he gives you while we wait is the church. It is a beautiful application for a text like this. He also gave us his spirit, which this is Pentecost Sunday. We say this often that the Christian life is not a rogue mission for you. That would be making you the hero of the story. The church is both the community and the context for our waiting. It's how we will persevere when you feel like letting go. And it's the bride that Jesus is returning for. It's the horizon that you are constantly fixed upon. It is both the community and the context for our waiting. Dare I say that the church is the real life, tangible soil of heaven where all hope, the side of glory grows. That's what the church is. This is finding your hope in the not yet. Well, we looked at these two things and there's a third one here. And for the sake of time, we're not going to look at that. Um, we're going we're to close here. And I want to close with this question as we think about the already but not yet. Uh, And the hope that we're finding there of where we are in the story is to ask yourself, what stories do you find yourself a part of this morning, whether you're a Christian or not? And are they big enough? Are are they big enough to sort of swallow all the other stories, all the other things that your heart goes after? Are they big enough uh, for you? Is it enough for you? Because this is enough for me, just to be honest with you. And I've tried a lot of other stories, believe me. (laughs) Too many. But this one is big enough because no other story 
that I've encountered has Jesus. And I want to read for you this quote here from C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. This is the best picture of what I think hope in the already but not yet should feel like to us. At present, he says, we are on the outside, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the pleasures we see. But all of the pages of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. That someday, God willing, we shall get in. We will put on glory, that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Friends, if you're taking anything away this morning as we leave chapter 9, you have a horizon this morning, and that horizon is glory. That's where this story is going. That's what the Christian story is all about. That's the perspective that it has. Your horizon this morning is glory, but thanks be to God that glory has a face and glory has a name. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the question that we have got to keep asking ourselves is, is he enough for us? Is that story big enough for us, for the hope that we will have today and for the hope that we'll have tomorrow? May such grace and unheard of mercy hold our minds and our hearts until that someday, God willing, when we shall get in. And may that be our desire moving forward as well, while we labor here as the church, waiting for his inevitable return. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it is a challenge in many ways to talk about hope, especially in the midst of tough, of tough times, of, of difficult circumstances. Um, it's easy to possibly forget hope, but certainly talk about it when things are going really well. Um, but when things are not, despair just seems like the easier option. And I pray that you would break through that. I pray that you would come into wherever it is that we are, And show us the hope of your son, the hope of Jesus, the hope of his blood, that we could look at that and know that we are already forgiven, that we are already his, and that his return is inevitable. And that our hope rests not in the things that we do or the things that we accomplish or the things, um, whatever story it is, but the hope that we, we have truly rests in the horizon that we pursue, and that is Jesus. Uh, that, is, that is him. Would, would that become more real to us as a church and as, as individuals? We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.